0: Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. Today's episode discusses recent volatility and the banking crisis through the lens of value investors as portfolio manager John Flynn and senior research analyst Eric Hageman sit down with our co-head of North American distribution, Valerie Arnold. This podcast is presented by Pazina Investment Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and is intended for institutional investors and financial professionals only. The views expressed reflect the current views of Pazina as of the date hereof and are subject to change. There is no guarantee that any projection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance is not indicative of future results. In the UK, this podcast is for professional investors only. This marketing communication is presented by Pazina Investment Management Limited, which is an appointed representative of ACA Marabella. ACA Marabella is authorized and regulated by the FCA.
1: Thank you, Eric and John, for joining me today. We are here to discuss the volatility we experienced last quarter. John, can you tell us how we navigated through the quarter? Well,
2: you're right, Valerie. It was a pretty volatile quarter going through it. But if you were to just take a snapshot of where we started and where we ended, you might miss it. Obviously, the, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in uh, early March really uh, interrupted some, some good momentum we had going in the, in the portfolios through February. And when you go and look at that, you saw a flight to safety in the market, or perceived safety, I should say, it, I don't know that it's actually safety, into some of the big tech names. And so that actually drove this huge gap between growth and value performance for the first quarter. And you actually, to see similar sized uh, magnitude of relative performance, you have to go back to COVID, the GFC, you have to go back to the internet bubble. Those are the periods where we've seen this kind of stress. Historically, it's then been good for value subsequently, but definitely some pain in March. That said, uh, our portfolios did outperform during the quarter. We feel good about the positioning, and we had a really couple interesting weeks there in in early March that I'm sure we're going to get into.
1: Thanks, John. Uh, Let's dig into more detail here. Eric, can you walk us through the recent banking crisis globally and tell us where it stands today?
3: Sure, Valerie. And I think it's worth stepping back here, because if you were coming back from an off-the-grid vacation, let's say somewhere like Tahiti, Uh, for a month, and you just showed up not knowing what had happened, you would ask yourself, why are we talking about a banking crisis in a rising rate environment where credit remains benign, given that rising interest rates are generally thought to be good for banks? And so why is this of all times when we've seen the second largest bank failure in American history? And in my opinion, this story is partly about the idiosyncrasies of one company—that's uh, Silicon Valley Bank—but I think more fundamentally, it's a story about the the tension between two competing objectives of banks: maintaining liquidity and maximizing profitability. And you know, if you'll indulge me in geeking out a little bit on on this, just to kind of explain what I mean by that, you know, if you think about a balance sheet on a spectrum. The most liquid balance sheet you could have would be all cash. That would be completely liquid, but it doesn't generate any yield. Uh, The balance sheet that maximizes yield and profitability for a bank would be long duration, high yielding, risky assets, but then they're giving up something on liquidity. So the bank always needs to balance liquidity and profitability. And arguably the most important constraint on how much liquidity you need is the stability of your funding, particularly deposit funding. And that's where Silicon Valley and its idiosyncrasies really come to the fore, because if you think about deposits like Jenga blocks, and they've they've built this tower of Jenga blocks, if the blocks stay in place and the tower won't fall. But if the blocks are very loose and they're falling out, eventually the tower will fall. And if you can really strain the analogy, higher interest rates are almost like a lubricant applied to those blocks. You know, The higher the rates, the more those Jenga blocks, which are deposits, are going to go away and, and seek yield um, elsewhere. And so higher rates actually intensify this conflict between liquidity and profitability. That's the context in which Silicon Valley got into trouble. And I, I say all this because it's important to bear in mind that this is really not a, like a systemic banking crisis that occurred, but almost an accident of history that this particular bank, Silicon Valley, had a very loose deposit profile. And that's because their client base is largely startups. Startups, by definition, burn cash. So their deposit base was actually this melting ice cube that always needed to be replenished by new venture capital money coming in, uh, you know, sort of refilling the coffers. And in the high-rate environment, those deposits only became looser. Silicon Valley was coming off the heels of this massive boom in venture capital money coming into startups. So their deposit base tripled from 2019 to 2022. There's no major bank that comes close to that level of deposit growth. And the problem isn't deposit growth per se, it's unsustainable or precarious deposit growth of the sort that Silicon Valley experienced. So if you have a lot of funding that's at risk of going away on short notice, you need to have cash or liquid assets available for sale to meet those obligations. And in a rising rate environment, the market value of a fixed income asset goes down. So you better have short duration assets available to sell off if you get deposit outflows. And for whatever reason, despite having this inherently precarious deposit base, Silicon Valley's balance sheet was loaded up with all of these long-duration assets whose value had plummeted just as rates were shooting up uh, in recent months. And so deposit outflows very rapidly turned into a solvency issue for them. And in fact, you know, our team looked at Silicon Valley through our process. It had screened up for us as a statistically cheap stock. And while I'm not going to say that we could predict that they were going to fail, uh, we did see enough red flags in the structure of their balance sheet in combination with the particularities of their business model that we, we did take a pass on it after looking at it in early February. And in fact, we... Uh, did not own any of the banks that were in the eye of the storm, and that's because we really focus on owning the banks with real deposit franchises, real businesses, reason to exist, strong customer relationships that will give them that stickiness when the Jenga blocks start flying out.
2: It's funny, Eric, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, usually when we talk about banks and looking for red flags, you know, the high growers are kind of, that's usually a red flag, especially on the credit side, right, because you know, we always say it's easy to give away money, it's hard to get people to give you their money. Uh, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it's kind of interesting, There was a whole ecosystem kind of around the venture capitalists and venture backed companies giving them their money, right, that put them in this position in this, that you're talking about, the precarious position. But just something that came to mind as you were talking there.
3: Yeah, John. I mean, growth as a red flag is generally thought of as an asset side analysis, uh, particularly on the lending side where you're taking the credit risk, because obviously anybody with a checkbook can make a loan. Um, And as you're pointing out, in this case, growing liabilities too fast had its hazards. So when a bank is taking on massive deposit growth, you really have to think about what is the stickiness of those Jenga blocks and what can they be prudently invested in.
1: Eric, could you also share how the other banks that were involved in the quarter, how things were impacted on, or what the impact was on Signature and First Republic?
3: Well, Signature and First Republic had characteristics that were kind of analogous in certain ways to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was kind of the epicenter of what happened and I guess you could say the poster child of this particular issue that I've been describing. But Signature and First Republic had similar characteristics in the sense of having very large percentages of uninsured deposits. The other thing that they had in common with with Silicon Valley was that both of those companies had grown deposits quite rapidly and proved to be unable to hold on to them. I think that had there not been a Silicon Valley, perhaps none of this ever would have needed to happen. Uh, I think that it was an accident of history in a way, but that's you know me pontificating on my opinion about it
2: well it's interesting because you know we're talking about the failed banks here, but but I think there' are some positives here too that that we saw in the banking system uh, this time around versus the financial crisis um, and, and that really is in the in the the large banks right the the Bank of America JP Morgan Citigroup, who you know both in this instance and in the instance of of COVID, were an aid to the government as opposed to a pain to the government, right? Which is a much better place to be Um, and with much healthier capital structures uh, and balance sheets than we've seen in, in that global financial crisis period. And so it was really interesting to see those banks working with the Fed and the FDIC to be part of the solution rather than being the problem. And we saw that with uh, First Republic, with everybody making the deposits at at First Republic, and I'm sure a lot more went on behind the scenes as well. Absolutely,
3: I think that it, it makes so much sense that the industry leaders got together and made such concerted action because it really is one of the particularities of banking that fear does beget fear, and it's in everybody's interest to keep fear from spreading in the system. And while it's positive that regulatory tools played a role here, I think that the industry did a great job of demonstrating how it can, in a sense, rescue itself, for lack of a better word, in times of stress like this.
1: So Eric, how did that um, impact our European bank holdings?
3: We view the European banks as being largely insulated from this and what happened to Silicon Valley Bank is basically a non-event for European banks from our perspective. One reason for that is that there is a an oddity of the U.S. regulatory framework in which now generally when rates rise, the value of certain assets has to be written down so it hits your your book value. And in the US, the regional banks are exempt from that dynamic, reducing their regulatory capital. This is kind of an arcane topic, but the bottom line is that the US regional banks ended up having less capital as we grew into the uh, rising rate environment than did the large US banks and the European banks. So the European banks are incredibly well capitalized they hold higher liquidity ratios than their U.S. counterparts, and generally our European bank holdings in particular are within the top two of their local markets. I'm thinking of companies like Barclays or NatWest in the U.K. Uh, or the Bank of Ireland in, in Ireland, ING in uh, Benelux. These are the banks that we hold on the European side. And in the event of stress, we would expect them to be net share gainers as there's, you know, generally a flight to safety dynamic in those in those crises.
1: Thanks, Eric. Um, John, I'd like to just go back to the U.S. market for a minute. Um, so given all that happened at, at SVB and, and other regional banks, did we take any action in the portfolio as a result?
2: We did take some action to the portfolio, but let me talk high level, a bit about what we saw and, and sort of expanded on some of the things Eric just said about the slightly different uh, regulatory regime for the regional banks. Because the controversy really became the available for sale portfolio, and, and you know, with the rapid rise in rates, the marks that would would be there um, didn't flow through the capital accounts of the regional banks where it would have for. The, the larger cap banks or international banks. And so when we looked across this landscape, the market flagged several banks with large, uh, unrealized losses, like a, like a key corp, uh, which we own in our mid-cap portfolio. And, and, and those stocks were probably the hardest hit. Um, I think there's important uh, fundamental differences between even a key corp and a Silicon Valley bank that we have to, to keep in mind. Uh, first and foremost would be, that just the nature of the deposit franchise is is much more diverse. So I think Silicon Valley Bank, it was something like 5% of deposits were FDIC insured. On average for our banks, it's kind of in the 50, 60% range. So so much broader deposit bases, much stickier relationships uh, on some of those accounts. Um, Also a much more traditional approach to asset liability management, right? So we're not making big interest rate uh, bets on the book. so even when you looked at uh, kind of these unrealized losses at a, at a key corp, um, you fall just below the regulatory threshold for, for for capital. Silicon Valley Bank, you wiped out completely all of your capital if you took those losses. Um, so we felt that key and, and fifth third in regions in our mid cap portfolios um, were in a different place um, from that standpoint. That being said, uh, bank runs are, by their definition, irrational, right? And, and so we, we did want to account for that risk in the portfolio. And so what we decided to do is take uh, half of our position in KeyCorp and move that into Comerica, which is a Dallas-based regional bank, business banking, uh, again, strong relationship bank, um, where we felt that, you know, we could maintain the exposure to the regional banks, but kind of diversify it out and add a fourth name into the mix so that if you did get that tail event of a run on the bank, um, it wasn't in a concentrated position.
1: Eric, can you tell us a bit more about our investment in UBS and um, how it is impacted by the merger with Credit Suisse?
3: Sure. So we've owned UBS for, for some time now. And what we have always liked about UBS is that they are a leading global wealth management franchise They have a profitable investment bank that has been right-sized down to what they do well. They do punch above their weight in equities in particular. And in their domestic business, they have a very strong Swiss consumer and commercial banking business. So the issues of Credit Suisse are are well known. Um, I'll start by just saying that we did previously own Credit Suisse, but we sold out of them last year. So we did not own them at the time of this deal being announced. And our judgment at the time was that Credit Suisse really seemed to have reached possibly a tipping point, Um, a tipping point where the cumulative impact of all the many issues that they've had, Archegos, Greensill, Spygate, I mean, the list really goes on. We felt that the cumulative impact of these different issues may have led them to a place where their franchise really would not be able to recover. Um, And that's ultimately what got us to leave the stock. Fast forwarding to today, um, it's quite clear that UBS didn't want to do this deal. That is what they have said publicly. On the other hand, the terms of the transaction are about as favorable as, as they could be uh, they are paying $3.3 billion for um, about 59 billion of equity. So it's not often that you're paying about 5% of book value in an acquisition. And um, on day one, they, they're getting like a 74% increase in tangible book value per share. The downside is that there is presumably an enormous amount of restructuring that's going to need to be done, but they they are given quite a bit of absorptive capacity to take on those losses, given them the price that they're paying. You know, we think that it's going to be a bumpy road for them. We think there's a lot of execution risk. And because the the range of outcomes has widened for UBS, we have not increased our position um, in the stock. But we have taken advantage of this opportunity to increase our position in Julius Baer, which is the largest pure play wealth manager in the world. And uh, our view is that Julius Baer could well end up being a, uh, a share gainer as a result of the issues that their Swiss
2: peers are having.
1: John, do you have any final comments to share?
2: For the banks, I think we're at an an interesting point where the data that we've seen from the Fed at this point suggests that we haven't seen a huge outflow of deposits in the system. There's been some, but you'd expect that in a rising rate environment. And I I think that as we come up on on earnings here, well, we'll get more color, but certainly the immediate fears in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank seem to be successfully mitigated. When I take a step back from the banks, uh, and we look at our portfolios. And going back to where I started, Valerie, on kind of this wide performance between value and growth, this kind of running into a narrow market led by tech, and then looking at our portfolios and what we own, you know, we've talked a lot about the valuation dispersion in the marketplace. We're still in the, in the low 90s percentile in terms of how, how you know, cheap stocks versus expensive stocks look. Right? So 90-something percent of the time, um, that spread's been narrower. Um, when we look at our portfolios today, we're buying things around 10 times forward earnings uh, on average in the portfolio. We've got normal earnings yields in the low double digits, uh, and we think this sets up for very nicely for long-term performance with very, very good businesses behind that as well. And you know, We talked today about the banks, but whether it's in, in industrials or consumer companies, um, we feel very good about where the portfolio is positioned for the long-term today.
1: Thank you, John and Eric, for joining me today. I'm sure our clients will find your insights helpful. Um, Even though the market was a bit rocky this quarter, I think it's it's good to know that we're well-positioned for the future.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.